0: Father Lord nobody trying to decide whether or not they want to go to church this morning in the sense of uh, of just having the ability to do so and so we pray father that you would bless this time and bless those lord that are catching the service at home uh, pray that you would uh, just bless the, the the gathering we have here as well Lord, we pray for wisdom discernment going forward we pray for safety We pray, Father, that you would just work your will in our lives. We pray now that as we get into your word, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that understand what your will is for us individually and what your will is for us as a church. And so we commit this time to you. We pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, as uh, if you're new with us, we studied the word of God verse by verse, book by book. (laughs) <laughs> All the way through, and uh, that's just the uh, that's the way that we see great value in doing that. You can get, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter twenty or in Acts chapter twenty, when he's there with the Ephesian elders at Miletus, he says, "You know, I've not shunned to to give to you the full counsel of God." And so, that's what our purpose is: is as we go through, you're not going to get the full counsel of God in one Sunday. But you will get the full counsel of God as we go through and as we, as we walk through the Scripture together. Here in the Book of Ephesians, this uh, church in Asia Minor, Eastern Turkey, is where it is now. Where, where, that's where this church was. Uh, large city, over a quarter of a million people. A number of house churches had sprung up. We see in the Book of Acts that uh, again Paul planted this church on his second missionary journey. He knew that uh, when he left uh, and coming through on his third missionary journey, he knew that that he would not see them again. The spirit had told him that trouble awaited him when he went back to Jerusalem. And indeed, when he went back, he was arrested and all of that. But there, after having been arrested, ending up in Rome, he always wanted to go to Rome. I don't think he realized at the time that he would get a ticket to Rome <laughs> in chains, And yet he always wanted to go to Rome. And as he's there, we've looked at that here in chapter two. We looked at the fact that Paul's life was not interrupted by going to Rome in chains. It was part of God's will. It was what God did uh, to ensure that Paul would be right where he wanted him. And Paul recognized that. That's why he said, I'm a prisoner of Christ. I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Christ. And so as he did that, the spirit then compelled him to write to these churches that he really would rather have personally visited. He loved being with the people in the churches that he had planted throughout the empire. And yet here we see that as he's in Rome, in jail, he writes four letters, this being one of them. We've been in chapter four. Last week we looked at, and I'm going to just go through the first six verses again so that we can pick up the context. Uh, you guys, if, if you know me, you know that context, I absolutely believe context is everything. When you study God's Word, and it, it, we've got to stay with the context. We're going to look at the context this morning. We're going to talk about, we're going to talk about some controversial scriptures. <laughs> and you might want to throw rotten fruit at me. No, you won't. But, <laughs> cause, cause you're, you're allowed to be wrong. I'm kidding. But the point is, is that, uh, as we go through this, we're going to look at, I'm going to walk down two sides of a passage. And I'm going to leave it to you to choose which one you want to go on with. Uh, and and that's fine. It's Remember, in chapter 4 here, the whole theme is unity. And the last thing I want to do is divide our church over this passage about unity. That would be really weird. So we're not going to go there. However, for context, verse 1, he says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, We looked at that word, I beg you please to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Interesting. That's the theme. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling and one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all And in you all. So his emphasis here, uh, as we see, is unity of the spirit. Uh, The importance of Christians, men and women alike, who have trusted Jesus Christ, that they maintain that unity in the church. We saw last week that there already is unity because when we are called, when we are set apart, when we come to Christ, he unites us with this organism called the body of Christ. By the way, the largest living organism on the planet. I don't know if you've ever looked at it that way before, but it is the body of Christ and and that he unifies us. Now we can essentially, (laughs) we could mess it up. And so he puts it upon us to maintain that unity. That's why he says to keep the unity as we looked at last week. The point in all of this, and, and, and there's a good application for us gang, is that you will always and i mean always always you will always build your life around what's important to you what do you value it's a universal principle that's why the essence of hypocrisy is to say well i think this way or i want to talk about this thing this way but this is what my life is about and so What he wants for us to be is people who walk in integrity, that we're walking in unity and that unity is birthed from the integrity, the personal integrity that we have. My life looks here the same way as it does at home. My life looks here the same way as it does at work or whatever. So uh, his point though is in verse one, he says, he says, walk worthy. He urges us to continually allow our lives to demonstrate the value of this calling And what is the calling? That we were set apart unto God. That he reached down and he touched our lives. Yes, personal responsibility, predestiny. I'm not going to go there this morning. (laughs) We won't go anywhere else. But both are taught, both are true. So yes, does he predestine? Of course he does. Does he give it to me to choose? Uh, Absolutely, there's free will. So without going into a big doctrinal treatise on that, Both apply. The point is, is we're going to build our lives around what we personally think is valuable to us. So when he says to walk worthy, we looked at how in verses two and three, he says, and he gives these character traits. These are values because we value our relationship with Christ. He then gives a series of values that we have as Christians. These are things that all of us can agree on are part and parcel of the Christian life. He talks about lowliness. He talks about gentleness. He talks about long suffering, patience. He talks about bearing with one another, being patient with one another. Why? Because we are so different. We are so different. Uh, I, I love the. I, I won't spend time there, but my wife and I are so different. And there are times where we kind of look at each other and shake our heads and go, "Somehow it works." <laughs> we just, yeah, you know, we don't figure it. It's got to be love because we're way different. We have different thoughts, different ideals, different ideas about things, and yet he, we do agree that as children of the king, that we walk and we esteem one another as more important than ourselves. That he talks about this endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's the point. So these are marks of a true Christian. Uh, They're attitudes of the heart and they're things that as we grow, none of us has arrived in perfect measure in these things. This is a lifelong endeavor. This thing, it is a walk. That's why he uses that word. It it implies activity. It implies participation. It implies something that I supply. He says, walk worthy. And we know that it's not about our earning worth before God. That's not what he's saying in that. We looked at that last week. Won't belabor it much this morning, but it's about recognizing his worth in our lives. And so that's what it is, as we walk worthy. It's a response to the grace that we've been shown. It's a response to him pouring out his love, dipping us in the righteousness of Jesus so where he sees us as perfect in every way. And, 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 and our, our lives just simply respond to the grace that we've been shown, to the love that we've been shown, to the love that he has shed abroad in our hearts. And now he says one thing, he says, give it away. Give it away. That's what these attributes these values produce he says that we're one Uh, again just in recapping last week he says you're one body you have one spirit these are things that we can all agree on these are the things this is the the bedrock of the unity that we share he says you're one body you have one spirit you have one hope One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Again, we looked at the mode. It's not talking about the mode of baptism. Do you sprinkle or do you dunk? I think that you dunk, but he's not talking about the mode. He's talking about the identity that we have in baptism with Christ. Baptized into his death, resurrected to newness of life. So and many people want to get hung up. They want to get out in the weeds on things like this and then argue about those. And again, it strikes me as being really kind of odd in this whole chapter on unity that we find things that we're going to argue about. And that's not his point. His his point is saying, these are things that should knit our hearts together. They're the things that true believers have in common, that we recognize that we have one God and one father of all. So... Now he moves to a new thing, beginning in verse 7, as he illustrates the fact that unity doesn't mean that we're identical. We're not automatons. You know what an automaton is? It's like you produce a whole line of robots and you turn them all on and they all exactly act exactly the same. We're not that way. We're individuals. And so unity is not the same as uniformity. Don't confuse those. And I'm, I'm going to say this as a pretext to what, when we actually get into to verse 7 here. Unity and uniformity are really, they're quite different. We can have unity, but have wide margins. We talked about that last week. For our differences, expecting uniformity is a slippery slope in the church. Churches divide. Churches fall apart because people get this wrong because people get this confused in their own hearts and minds. Uh, here's, here's just a, a, some things that just came into my mind. I, this is not an exhaustive list. Uh, things that, that people get upset about with other Christians. Uh, how about tattoos and body piercings? There you go. Uh, have you ever heard somebody mutter something under their breath when the guy that's all tatted up walks in? And that, and that hasn't happened here, but I've seen it. People get, they get upset about that. It's like, oh, I gotta be a Christian. No, 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 no. Here's one. How about wearing hats in church? I've known people that have been upset about that. Some of us have, yeah, and it's great. If that's our own conviction, keep it. But keep it there. What about the style and volume of Christian music? For some, it's too loud. For some, it's too low. For some, it's, the wrong kind, how could you listen to that and be a Christian? My son, he loves to tell me about his favorite worship music. And, and he's in his early 40s, but he still has a whole different idea of worship music than I do. And I have a whole different idea of worship music than somebody that's 95 years old does. We can have unity and not have uniformity. Style of dress. Except, and the only exception I would make here, I don't. you know, we don't have a dress code here. Well, we do. Wear clothes. <laughs> it's, this is not a clothing optional church, thank you very much. But the point is, is that we don't, we don't have a dress code on purpose. If you want to wear a suit, wonderful. If you want to wear flip-flops and cutoffs, I don't care. And I don't think anybody else does either. The point is, we can be different. We can have room for one another's differences. Uh, you know, I remember as a young Christian that I really loved listening to this guy on the radio. He was a fabulous Bible teacher. And then I saw him on television. And you want to know something? He was wearing a robe. <laughs> and I was scandalized. I was like, I'm not, I don't know if I can receive from this guy. I didn't know he wore a robe. All those things that he's been teaching me, the Holy Spirit's been driving into my heart. And I, I got hung up on that. The point is, is that don't get, don't don't get the fact that God calls us to unity confused with the, with. Thinking that he calls us to uniformity that's a, again it 's a slippery slope, folks and we and very often when people are untaught they don't really discern the difference and it causes trouble okay we 're going to read through I'm going to go through verses seven through twelve here, and then we 're going to come back and unpack it mainly verses seven through ten we 're going to actually look at through twelve as we go along but um, uh, we're going this is part one uh, of the giver and the gifts. That's the title of this message. And uh, this part, the part one, we're going to look at the giver. Next week, we'll look at the gifts. Uh, We're going to touch on the gifts today. We're going to talk about gifts a lot, actually, but we're really, the focus is going to be on Jesus as the giver of gifts. And so he says, but to each one, grace was given in verse seven, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. Now this, he says in parentheses here, he says, now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he first also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. This is a fascinating text, gang. Uh, people have different opinions on, on some of this. And we're gonna talk about that to an extent. Uh, and I'm gonna do my best to give you solid interpretation as to what this means. We're into interpretation, alright? There are, there are solid interpretations on a couple of those. Actually, there's two main ones, and we're going to look at both of those. And there are a number of other interpretations that actually go into heresy. And we're just going to avoid those. Uh not my place to sit up here and teach heresy to you guys, because they, they actually contradict the rest of the word of God. God's word validates itself. And that's a principle that we need to adhere to, that if we see something, we want to take something, we want to isolate a passage, we can get in trouble if it contradicts some other passage. So uh, with that, when he says in verse 7, he says, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is an essential truth. Every good thing that we have is a gift coming from, flowing from, as a result of the grace of God at work in our lives. It is utterly by his grace. It is always by his grace It's never because he has put an expectation out there that is outside the sphere of his grace. We'll talk about that as we go. Paul's been, he's been talking up until this point in chapter four about the qualities of the members of the body. Now he's gonna shift and he's gonna start speaking of their functions, all right? Each one of us, he says, each one of us, he's not saying some of us or a few of us, Or just those who are already serving, but each one of us has been given this grace as a measure of Christ's gift. He's talking about, he's going to go into talking about spiritual gifts. This is the grace was given. It's not earned. It's not merited. It's not deserved somehow. These are graces. Gifts of the Spirit are graces. We'll look at that more in depth next week. But when he he talks about, he speaks of Christ's gift. What is Christ's gift? Grace. He has poured out his love on us when we are absolutely undeserving. Again, it's about grace. They're free gifts. They're not merited. They're totally, completely undeserved. And they're not even in accord with the way that we live and the way that we have talents and all of that in our lives. Very often he gifts us in areas that we don't have abilities prior the distinction here is these are spiritual gifts and they're not natural abilities. I want to make that clear. Both are from God. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I was thinking about this. My wife's, uh, my mother-in-law, Stacy's mom had to have some surgery here a couple weeks back and, or a few weeks back. And so Stacy went over to spend a week with her mom and to take care of her, both her parents. And hi guys, they're watching. Um, <laughs> Anyways, she goes over to take care of her parents, and before she leaves, she says, "Now, honey, I want you to make sure to water the plants. There's plants in the backyard, there's plants in the house, and there's plants in the front porch. This girl knows she's got a green thumb. She knows that. She, things just look at her and grow. I don't. I don't get it. And I, I got to be honest with you. I was stressed." I kept walking by and looking at the plants to see if they looked healthy or not, and then pretty soon it's like there's a couple of wilted things on the front porch. It's like, oh my gosh, I gotta more water, and I, I'm kind of going through this whole thing. Why? Because I kill things. That's not my natural ability. I don't do that well, and it pre- it produced stress in me to try to figure out if I was gonna have her come home to a house full of dead plants. <laughs> so. It, that's a natural ability she has. I'm not calling that a spiritual gift, but it's a natural ability. I remember one time in the body of Christ, back when I was in Northern California, we had a guy, his name was Bart, his dear friend, came out of the LDS church and just watched a miracle happen in the guy's life. Anyway, God began to equip him. We looked at, he, is he being equipped? Is he being called to be a Bible teacher? Because he was really, really sharp, and, um, not like sharpness is part of it, but we were just wondering. But we also knew that the guy was a used car salesman. And we're thinking, okay, is that a natural ability? Because he knows how to talk. He sold my son a car. Uh, but is that a natural ability or is God developing the gift of teaching? And, and we wondered about that. And as time went on, God confirmed that he was indeed calling this guy to teach. And he's a wonderful teacher and a wonderful brother but it was just a question mark because there's a difference between natural abilities and giftedness, the gifts of the spirit. You can be talented in something and not gifted, but you can also be gifted and not talented. I will tell you folks, before I came to Christ, the absolute last thing in the world I would ever, ever, ever have thought was that I would teach the Bible It's like, how odd. That is so not me. That is like, you know, I was a businessman. I just loved being in the game. I loved doing all the stuff. And I was an artist and did, you know, those were my natural abilities. I, I liked doing all that stuff. And it's like, teach the Bible. But after I got saved, after I came to the Lord, I began to, like just a few weeks in, I began to kind of take apart the preacher's message and think, oh, I like the way that fits together. And Oh, that was a good point. And I began to identify he's making points. He's doing this. There's a pattern to what he's doing and, and all of this stuff. And and then a, a few years went by and I was involved in a home fellowship group and uh, I started speaking and teaching at this thing. And I didn't know much about anything, a little, maybe less than I do now. But the point is, is that I started speaking and people started listening. And I began to realize and, and people would say, Gee, you know, could you come and speak here? And I'm yeah, I guess. You know, I'm just, just John. But it was God forming that gift, the gift of teaching in me. It was something that wasn't a natural ability, but it was something that God called me to do and he equipped me to do it. So when we look at the gifts of the spirit, as we look at them, there, there are three main places in the New Testament. There's here in Ephesians chapter four, and then there's Romans chapter 12. There's a lot of stuff there. But the primary places, and we're not going to spend time there today, we'll probably look at it next week, is in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, Paul does a very exhaustive uh, a bit of work there on the gifts of the Spirit, on what spiritual giftedness is and what it's not. Uh, interesting when we look at God equipping us, uh, it reminded me when we were in Hebrews, we looked at this not too many months ago. In Hebrews thirteen twenty one, Paul says, may God make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. God equips the called. When he calls people, he is the one who works in us and equips us to do his will. The point is that God gives each believer at least one gift, if you don't know what those are, that's fine. We'll get there. But it's really important that we understand that, that each of us has a part. He's talking about each one. So when we look at, it, at, at spiritual gifts, the definition of a spiritual gift is that it's a God-given ability to serve God and other Christians in such a way that Christ is glorified and believers are edified. Okay. Both sides to that. We're doing it for the glory of God. We're never doing it for vain glory. The last thing I want to do is do what I'm doing to be seen. Or to start thinking I'm all that and more. That's ridiculous. But I want it to be for him to be glorified and for the church to be built up. That's what edified means. And so when we look at spiritual gifts, those two things should be at work in any Aspect of spiritual giftedness, and it doesn't matter if you're mopping floors. I did; I mopped a lot of floors for the Lord. My like, years as a Christian it doesn't matter if you're doing that. By the way, ladies, the place looks great. This is free, uh, not in my notes. But uh, we came in here while the place was closed down. Uh, my wife had she had the wisdom to cover everything with sheets, and I remember Brian uh, up in the sound booth was talking one day. He said, "Man, I walked in here and it was like this. This is just depressing." It's like the church is in storage. And it was. I mean, when the place was closed and you'd walk in and they had had some construction work going over in the corner and there was dust all over everything and just this layer of dust everywhere and and everything covered. It was, man, I'll tell you, it was depressing. And so we put a call out, again, asking for people that want to serve. Do, do you want to come in and, and help clean up the church? We actually had more offers for help than we had needs for help, for, for the work to be done. And ladies, it looks great. It looks wonderful. I walked in here the other day alone and I just sat up in the balcony and prayed and kind of looked out over everything. And, and I just thought this place is starting to look loved again because it didn't for, for months. So spiritual gifts, is God glorified in what you're doing to serve the Lord? Are other people built up? That's just a good barometer. In First Peter chapter four, Peter says this. He says, "As each one has received, each one again, not some of you, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another, build one another up, as good stewards of the manifold grace." There's that term again of God. These are graces. The word gift, and we'll look at it next week. The literally, the word is charis, and it's the same word as we get for that. that the same word for grace. I got messed up. The same word for grace. When Paul says grace said peace to you in his letters, it's charis and shalom. It's the same word for a spiritual gift. There's a bit of a different word here in Ephesians. I'm not going to go into that. We'll do a word study on it later on next week. But the point is, is these are graces. When he gives a gift, it's not because I've merited it. It's not because there's somehow that he he's going to uh, he's singling me out. We know that God's no respecter of persons, that he, he is sovereignly gifting his people according to his will. The point in all of that is Christianity is not a spectator sport. There is something for all of us to do. And it may not be in the body, in the church proper. Uh, I know people that are serving. Uh, I serve on the board with Love Inc. here in Newburgh and and I love, it's a parachurch organization and I love the work that is being done there and through the other churches and all. And there, it's just a great ministry. It's not always within the four walls of the church. God does gift us and equip us and call us to various tasks that are not necessarily in the church. Are many of them? Yes. Yeah, it's sort of the old saying that about 5% of the people do 100% of the work in the church. <laughs> It's true in many respects. However, in this body, I'll tell you what, in the three years that I've been here, a little less than three years, uh, Stacey and I have been blessed. We just see that there's just a spirit of cooperation and a spirit of love uh, between everyone that when there's a need that goes out, people step up. Uh, and it's just a blessing to see that. It's a sign of a healthy church as well. So you might ask, well, how do I discover... Spiritual gifts. What's what's involved in that? And I want to tell you, when I, as a younger Christian, I, I got into doing these spiritual gift surveys, and then I began to realize that I got a bit of a haughty attitude about it because I would think, well, I'm gifted for this, but not for that, and well, you know, the other people they could handle that because that's not my gift, and and I began to realize that it was actually became a point of pride, and and what it was was that. I was limiting God by saying, well, I'm only going to serve you in these ways that this test told me I could serve you rather than saying, Lord, I don't care. And folks, I'm telling you, this is not false piety. I don't care. Like I said, some of my best ministry was scrubbing floors at St. Timothy's Episcopal Church 30 years ago. I loved it. I loved it. When the Lord spoke to my heart one day, I wept on my hands and knees scrubbing this floor when he said, I am as pleased with this in you as I am Billy Graham filling football stadiums. That That was from God because it's not about the quantitative aspect of the gift. It's about being faithful. And he calls us to be faithful in the giftedness that he gives us. So how do I discover it? There's really not one answer to that, but, but there are some pointers. Uh, one of them is that we learn to respond through the leading of the Holy Spirit. It, what what lights your fire? What has got your attention? Like I said, I was very, uh, years before I actually began teaching, I was fascinating, fascinated with with the method in which preachers preached and the way they did their messages. I just thought that that was just so cool. And it was like, wow, that makes so much sense. And wow, you know, it's like, that's, it just got my attention. It was something that lit a fire in my soul. And, and not that that's the only way that I serve. I mean, I love, I love when I see people behind the scenes that are doing ministries. And there are people in this body who are prayer warriors. And because I'm the pastor, I've come to know who some of them are. And yet, they don't want any press. They don't want any, any notoriety. They don't want any of that. They just want to be faithful in the calling that's on their lives to pray, to intercede for God's people. And you better believe that there are people that pray for you every day because that is the gift that they have. They've been called to intercede for the saints. So what lights a fire in your soul? That's it's one of the things. The other is it's important. It's really important to be part of a local body of believers. Because we're called, as I mentioned when we got started this morning, part of the struggle I've had through this whole deal is I just miss you guys. And I miss the fellowship of the saints. I miss being able to look you in the eyes. It's just not enough on Zoom or blue jeans. And they're good. I mean, they've helped to keep us together. I'm not, I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying that there's nothing like this. and And so... It's good to be part of a local body. Gifts are often discovered through our involvement there. Here's a question. If, if being together is unimportant, you know, I, I've talked to people, and I'm not talking about people that are watching at home or, or people that uh, for their own reasons are not a part of our gathering here. And we, like I said, we honor that, we respect that, and we want people to use wisdom these days. Uh, without going into a whole lot of detail, there's still some danger and, and we want to be careful. We want, we want people here that are comfortable being here that understand that, yeah, we've done what we can as a church and, and that there's personal responsibility involved. But, you know, when I've looked at what we're doing as a church, I want to be sure that people are comfortable with where they're at. Uh, but if being together is unimportant, why does the Bible place such emphasis on unity? It's a good, it's a good question. And again, I understand people are at home and all of that. We are still one body, whether people are part of the body you now for necessity to, I know that that's not the first choice, but we're still one. We still want to strive for unity. Verse eight, therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. So Paul is quoting here, Psalm 68 verse 18, and here's what it says. It says, you've ascended on high and you've led captivity captive and you've received gifts among men, even from the rebellious so that the Lord God might dwell there. So Paul is loosely quoting Psalm 68. And, and, and then he, in verses nine and 10, he makes a parenthetical statement. He, this is sort of a parenthesis. It's to clarify or to add on to tag on to what he's saying. He says, now this, he ascended, what does he mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Question. And this is the, this is the text that, uh, that I I shared with you when we got started, that we're going to, we're going to run down two roads on this. (laughs) Question. Did Jesus go to hell between the crucifixion and the resurrection? No. Yes. Bear with me. Before you before you think, I don't know about this church. Um, bear with me, and because we've got to define terms here, we've got to understand what's being said, and and what is Paul getting at with this statement? Because we're going to look at that too. There's a clear distinction between Hades, the abode of the dead, and Hell, the lake of fire, that place where Jesus said would be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Gehenna. Which was also, Gehenna was the name of the, the, in the valley of Gehenna, there, just off the city of David, there's a, there's a valley. It was the valley of Hinnom in the Old Testament. And that was the dump. It was where they took all of the refuse. It's where they took actually the bodies. And, and they would sprinkle them with sulfur because that would help them to burn. And, and it was, it was always a smoking heap down there. But when Jesus talked about Gehenna, he wasn't talking about the dump. He was using it allegorically for some place that you don't ever want to be. So Revelation chapter 20 makes this distinction. It talks about the lake of fire or the place of eternal torment, hell. Uh, It also talks about Hades, the abode of the dead. The, The point is that Jesus didn't go to the place of eternal torment. There is some really bad doctrine out there, guys. A lot of us being peddled by, you know, like the new apostolic reformation, all this goofy stuff that, that, that says that Jesus had to go down and either suffer in hell to kind of complete the deal, or that he went down and he preached in hell to give him one more chance. Hogwash. That's, that's a Greek word. But hogwash. It's, it, it's, it's just not true. When Jesus hung on the cross and he said to tell it's finished it was finished. He didn't say it's finished, except I still got a little work to do. No. So why does the Apostles' Creed say that he descended into hell? I mean, the venerable Apostles' Creed. Did you know that that line was added to the Apostles' Creed in the fourth century? And the Apostles' Creed didn't start out as a creed from the apostles. It started out as a baptismal thing that you had acknowledged before you got baptized. I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying that that was added, that was tagged on. Whether it's true or not, again, we're going to look at this. The, the terminology in the New Testament uh, is Sheol, Hades, which is Old Testament for, for the abode of the dead. Hades, the New Testament equivalent. Hell, Gehenna, the lake of fire, paradise, Abraham's bosom. All of those terms are used for the afterlife, for what happens after this life. And there's there's great clarification that can be had. I want to start with paradise because it's not part of our text, so it's safe. But paradise is synonymous with heaven. There are three places. I'm not going to go to them. The the most famous is when Jesus was on the cross and he said to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise, Heaven. Some say that Abraham's bosom is heaven. I disagree. And the reason is, is in Hebrews chapter 11, it's talking about Abraham and the Old Testament saints did not receive the promises. They were, they didn't go directly to heaven. The, the Old Testament saints, they, the believers there didn't go directly to heaven because Christ had come. After he came, yes. Well, I'm gonna get ahead of myself. <laughs> but the point is, in the Old Testament, Sheol, uh, it, it, the New Testament, Hades, the Old Testament, Sheol is the realm of the dead. It's the place of departed souls with two compartments. Evidently, there are two compartments there, one of blessing and one of judgment. And this is coming from assembling a lot of different passages in God's word. That's why there's, there's, there are dissenting views on this, And I'm telling you, take your pick. This is not essential to salvation. It's just trying to make sense. What is Paul saying here in Ephesians 4? The point is that uh, the Old Testament believers didn't go directly to heaven because Christ hadn't come. And when you look at what's going on here, I think a good example or a good way to look at it is through the the story of the rich man in Lazarus. Remember there that... The Lazarus is the poor guy. He's the beggar and and the rich man. He's just got lots and lots. And and then he dies. It says says that that Lazarus died and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man dies. He's buried and he's in torment in Hades. And he's awaiting judgment. Both are temporary places where souls are kept and await final resurrection and judgment. Gosh, I want a rabbit trail on that. We don't have time. Uh, I would love to just do a whole study on this and and for us to walk through this together. But uh, study it out for yourself. I encourage you. There's a lot to study here. 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter talks about this. He says, by the Spirit, uh, after Jesus' death, that Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison. All right? Uh, The word prison there is literally a place of detention. It's not necessarily a place for bad people. I believe again that that adds to the the thought that Hades has two compartments. He did not go to Gehenna. He didn't go to the place of eternal torment. There's nothing in the Bible that says he did. So yes, the Bible indicates that Jesus descended to Hades, not Gehenna, and made a triumphant announcement of victory over sin, Satan, and death. And if you don't believe that, you're not going to you're not going to get nobody's going to get mad at you for that. There are different views on this. I'm giving this the best view that I can by looking at a whole bunch of scriptures, uh, which I love to study. I, that's part of how the Lord kind of got me to teaching. Was I just love digging around in this stuff. And as I've dug around, this is really the composite of what I've come up with. So it doesn't say that Jesus went down and he shared the gospel. It says that he made a proclamation. And that he emptied the righteous compartment of Sheol or Hades when he he emptied it of the faithful captives there who had waited for his coming, for the first coming. However, here's the bud That may or may not be what Paul is getting at here. Remember, he's speaking of spiritual gifts. It's kind of odd that in this whole thing on unity and in this whole thing on spiritual giftedness that he breaks into talking about this. So I want to, I want to give you an interpretation that I personally believe makes more sense. And you don't have to go with that again. It's take your pick, but I want to go back to verse eight. We're going to go through this again, but we're going to go through it with a little bit of a different view. And, And I'll show you why I believe this fits the context. Again, the context better. This is therefore he says in verse eight, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. To make his point about Christ being the giver of gifts, Paul quotes with a very significant difference from Psalm 68, 18. I'll read it again. Psalm 68, 18, you have ascended on high, you have led captivity captive, you've received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. This psalm describes the king's conquering return. Uh, Take the time to study out Psalm 68 on on your own. But again, paying attention to the context of that psalm, he's talking about a a king and, and his conquering return. He ascends on high. That's to say that he climbs the steep road of Mount Zion into the streets of Jerusalem, of the holy city. That's what he's talking about. That's what David is talking about there. He brings in his captive band of prisoners. That is to say, he marches through the streets with his prisoners in chains behind him to demonstrate his conquering power. Now comes the difference. The psalm speaks of speaks next uh, about the conqueror receiving gifts. Paul changes it, and he says that he gave gifts to his people. He makes a major departure from Psalm sixty eight eighteen. The, in the Old Testament, the conquering king demanded and received gifts. In the New Testament, the conqueror Christ offers, and gives gifts. That's the essential difference between the two covenants, by the way. In the Old Testament, a jealous God insists on tribute being paid. In the New Testament, a loving God pours out his love, giving gifts to men. In Psalm 68, King David's calling upon God to deliver his people from their enemies like he had done in the past history that he had with that nation. David refers to how God marched before the Jews in the wilderness. How Mount Sinai, at Mount Sinai, the mountain had shaken at his presence. And the kings of the earth, how they were scattered before God. He speaks of how God led captivity captive, then received gifts from men. Paul teaching here sees this passage as prophetic. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the immediate application, calling upon God to deliver the people as he had done previously. That's what David was doing. Paul sees a future application of this Psalm. And verses nine and 10 are the application of what he sees as prophetic in Psalm 68, 18. That's where he says, now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, when you look at the lower parts of the earth, and I spent some time in my lexicon, uh, in preparing for this, looking at the, the Greek words there, the lower parts of the earth. And, and here's what some scholars say. They see this, as an ex, this expression as being a reference of, to the earth, which is low in contrast to heaven. He's not talking about him going to hell. It's talking about him coming to the earth. This is, a talk, this is talking about when he came. This is, a, this is about the incarnation in this view. So On the basis of such an interpretation, one may render verse nine as he came down to the earth itself. Paul's applying the language found in Psalm 68 to what Christ had done. There's no doubt that this is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. So here's a general application from that. Jesus Christ, first of all, descended to this earth to take on human nature. We know that, we agree on that. He took on humanity. He paid the ultimate price for our sins When he died on the cross, through his death and his resurrection, Jesus conquered sin, Satan, and death. He is the conqueror here. He then, as we know, ascended into heaven. And when he did ascend, he ascended as a conqueror. As a result, he now has the authority to give gifts to believers. He does so through the authority of the Holy Spirit. While on earth, Jesus in his humanity was located. In other words, he was bound to time and space. Now in heaven, he's no longer bound because the Holy Spirit has been given. These are called gifts of the spirit. Now that he's ascended, he's not limited. That's why we see in verse 10 that he might fill all things. So when Jesus ascended, he didn't leave the world emptier. But his glorious presence and his divine power fill all things. He fills the universe. Now, verses 11 through 16 here are, they're a typical Pauline sentence. If you know what that, what I mean in that, we've looked at it a couple of times here in chapter one and in chapter three, where it's like Paul sucks in a great big deep breath and he just, his sentence is linked. It's a series of thoughts that are linked together and it's a long, it's one long sentence, but we're going to look at briefly, verses 11 and 12, uh, and then we're going to leave the rest on the table for next week. It says that he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So when he says he himself gave some to be apostles, when he himself, when he ascended, now having taken up the powers as God, when he came to earth in the incarnation, we know that he remained fully God and fully man, 100% both. He didn't lay aside his deity to come to earth. He did lay aside some of his powers. He emptied himself, taking the form of a man. We're told that having resumed all of his powers as God, the, the ones that he had laid aside. Again, not his deity. He never laid that aside. But now being in a place where he fills all things, he has the authority to gift his people with these graces. People that belong to him now can experience this supernatural empowering and gifting and things that he imparts to us based on who he is, not based on who we are. There's one qualification Are you a member of the body? Are you part of his body? Because he does this, he calls some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. Interesting, the pastors and teachers, we'll look at it next week. We're gonna look at these in depth next week and some other passages as well. But it's actually one word, it's pastor hyphen teacher. I love the way that this is laid out because it's one thing to be a teacher, but the word pastor here is the word poiment. And the word poimen in Greek is the one that Jesus uses with Peter when he's there at the the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He made breakfast for the guys. They were out in the boat. They fished all night, caught nothing. And Jesus said, how's the fishing going? And (laughs) they uh, all of a sudden had more fish than they knew what to do with. They got to shore. And when Jesus was restoring Peter, because this is after his denial, he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yeah, Lord, you know I love you. And and the word play with the word love there is significant. Phileo and agape, we're not going to go there. But he says, do you love me? And, And he said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said, feed my sheep. All right, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know. He said, tend my lambs. Both sides in that. He uses the word poimen. He uses the word shepherd. What does a shepherd do? He feeds and he tends. And and the same word is used there that Paul uses here for pastors. It's not about some hierarchical thing. You guys know, if you know anything about me and the way our church is organized, this is not about a hierarchy. Is there positional authority? Yes. Yeah, and that's something that God's called me to do. But when he calls people, I love in John chapter 13 where he wraps himself with a, a towel and he gets down on his hands and knees and he washes every one of his disciples' feet. And he says, look, a, not, or a student's not greater than his master, implying neither are you greater than me. But he, he, he's very clear there. He says, I'm doing this as an example for you. Now, when you go out there and you're used in places of leadership in the body of Christ, you know what your attitude needs to be? You go low and we're called folks to be greatest in the kingdom is to be servant of all. We are called to go low. I am very, very committed to that. And and, yeah, do I always get it right? No, Uh, sometimes I'm a bozo like anybody else. But you know what? The attitude of my heart, the overriding desire of my heart is that we have a culture here of esteeming one another as more important than ourselves. That's unity. Again, this is all in the greater context of unity. It's in the greater context of what it is to be a servant of the King. And as we understand and we connect with what God's will for us is in this, it's not necessarily a specific set of giftings that I need to get drilled down on now. But I need to understand that we are we're united in the things where we understand and we agree in the major aspects of Christianity. And we can be very different what Paul is getting into here now is he's saying there's going to be different gifts. And let me give you just a, a piece of advice. The area where you are specifically gifted can easily become that thing through which you are most critical of others. Oh, look at that. They're not giving. It. No, 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 no. It's about going low. It's about understanding that these are Graces. It's about understanding that this is part of what unifies the body, not letting my gift become some pivot point to divide. We do well to understand that it's about unity and diversity. Regardless of your interpretation, regardless of which interpretation suits you here, Paul's point still stands. Jesus is the only one in history who's uni- uniquely qualified to grant supernatural giftings to his people. This is about spiritual gifts. It's not about him going to hell or not going to. I'm not saying that it's not important because the Bible bears out that he did. I'm not sure that this passage indicates that. I personally believe that what suits this passage better is looking at the context of Psalm 68 and saying, all right, Lord, it looks like what you're saying there is that Paul's making a huge difference instead of the king coming and wanting gifts from people that now he gives gifts to people. And that's the point that Paul's making in that because he's talking about unity. He's talking about unity and diversity. He's talking about spiritual gifts. For me, that works. And if it doesn't work for you, that's fine. Please, you know, don't send me email. (laughs) I get that there are wide, there's a diversity of opinions about this. Be careful of the doctrines that are out there that will trash this, that lower God to a place that he doesn't need to be lowered to, or that, put a burden on man that he's not called to bear, both sides, it's about the body of Christ. It's about flourishing. It's about blooming where we're planted. I praise God that each of you are planted here this morning and that each of you watching online are planted where you are. It's about being content in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. These are tough circumstances. And yet we know that the one that we serve is above all that. Before we close, I just want to share that if you watching online, we, we know that our online audience has grown like 400%, which is just weird. I, I, I'm not saying you're weird, but <laughs> you're weird. <laughs> That'll get it to shrink. No, but the point is, is that it, our online audience has grown significantly through this whole pandemic or whatever you want to call it. Um, and I've had a great burden in my heart that we don't close a service without sharing the gospel and sharing the hope that we have in Christ. And I mean, and I'm serious about it. These days are stressful. These days, people don't have answers. You think you're going to find answers in our culture? Oh my goodness. Even since the last week that I was here, it's changed. And I'm not saying it got better. And I I don't want to go into the news because that'll stress me out. (laughs) But my point is, is that there's no answers out there. There's no really enduring solid answers. He talks about the hope that we have. We have one hope here in Ephesians 4. And that hope that we have is Jesus Christ. And if you don't know him this morning, you can fix that. You can have a life that's worth living. You can have the hope that we have as his children, as his people. And what it simply is, is coming to a place of acknowledging that you've lived your life away from God. That you know that there's an emptiness inside that somehow you sense that only he can fill. It has to do with repenting of sin, with turning from your sin, of saying, you know what? My life doesn't work. And I've had a hand in that. And I'm turning from my old life. And I'm embracing Jesus. I'm letting the weight of my life down on Jesus Christ. Knowing that he will take, and I guarantee you folks, he will take that broken, dented up, messed up life. That he will move in. No, it's not about getting your life together, about getting yourself cleaned up and then coming. That doesn't work. It's about come as you are and he will take that life. If you have, if you have a heart that's simply willing to say, Lord, Lord, I want you to be Lord in my life. That he'll do it. So if that's you this morning online or, or here, uh, I know many of you here and yet, I also know that these are serious days. These are not days where you want a question mark over your life spiritually. Give your life to Christ. Give him your heart. Ask him to come in. Turn from the old life. Embrace him. Father, we want to thank you this morning for your word. God, you are just so amazing. Lord, I, I don't know which which road to go down with this particular interpretation, yet I know that you're, and, and that you did empty that abode of the dead for the righteous that you led high, a host of captives. Also believe here, Lord, that, that, that you inspired the apostle to write these things, to demonstrate that you have the power and the authority to give gifts to men and to women. So Father, I pray for each of us, Lord, that you would work in us, that we would be able to see your hand in our lives in such measure that it's unmistakable. I thank you, Lord, that you've called us. I thank you, Lord, that you are the equipper and that you want to equip us both for your glory and for the building up of your church. We thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that we could gather this morning what a privilege it is to be with your people. I thank you, Lord, for those that have chosen to remain online and pray, Father, that you would reach each one, that you would minister your love, your truth, your grace with each one. We praise you this morning. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word, divinely inspired, relevant today, as much so as it was 2,000 years ago. What a miraculous thing that is, Lord. And it's all by the power of your Holy Spirit. We acknowledge that. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. And all God's people said, I've been waiting to hear that for a while.